We stand uh, to read God's uh, word not because it's commanded of us, it's not. What we do is an expression of our uh, awareness that this is not merely a human book, but that God is its primary author. And we wish uh, uh, to demonstrate physically that we're being attentive uh, to what he has to say. So if you would, if you're able, please uh, stand. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 9 uh, this morning. Let's pray once again. Father, may you be pleased to send your spirit afresh to us that our minds might be open, our hearts soft, our ears attentive to what you would say to us uh, through this text and give grace to both hearer and speaker, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarshish named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes. And he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? 
to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord who had spoken to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You may take your seats. In Richard Connell's story, The Most Dangerous Game, uh, his hero, Sanger Ransfeld, is one of the world's most celebrated big game hunters. And on his way to a hunting trip in South America, he falls off his speeding uh, yacht. He's a strong swimmer, and so he manages uh, to reach an island It's a foreboding uh, place, and in the course of his first night there, he hears gunshots, and so he knows it's inhabited. After searching, he manages uh, to find a palatial chalet occupied by a Russian nobleman, General Zaroff, and his servant. The general immediately recognizes the visitor's uh, name and warms him welcome, excuse me, welcomes him warmly because he too is a big game hunter. And Rainsford's really pleased with his good fortune until the formal dinner that evening, during which the conversation uh, took a turn around Zaroff's hunting a new animal. Rainsford's face was puzzled about what this new animal was, and Zaroff explains, it supplies me with the most exciting hunting in the world. No other hunting compares with it for an instant. Every day I hunt and I never grow bored now, for I have a quarry with which I can match my wits. Rainsford's face showed even more bewilderment, and so the general went on, I I want the ideal animal to hunt. And so I said to myself, what attributes are there in the ideal quarry? Well, the answer, of course, was that it must be courageous and cunning And above all, it must be able to reason. No animal can reason, Rainsford protested. My dear fellow, there is one that can. You cannot mean, but why not? I can't believe you're serious. Why shouldn't I be serious? I'm speaking of hunting. And to his growing horror, Rainsford, the great hunter, realized that he was Zaroff's intended Pray. 
Saul is a hunter. He has been hunting Christians, and he is now the prey. He discovers to his surprise and delight that he too is being hunted by Jesus. Saul's experience is a picture of how someone comes to know Christ. Saul of Tarsus is better known as Paul the Apostle. He's second only to Jesus in the impact he's uh, had on the world. And uh, you're going to hear me undoubtedly slip into calling Saul, who is also uh, named Paul, Paul in the course of this sermon, even though Luke uh, consistently calls him uh, Saul until a certain point in the book of Acts. So you'll pardon uh, that slip of the tongue. The story of Saul's transformation is told three times in the book of Acts. And he's the central uh, figure in about the midpoint. For Luke, Saul is the living example of the message of grace. In Saul's life, we see how grace operates. We see how God presently deals with his enemies. And our text falls into two parts. Saul is transformed, and then people react uh, to the transformed uh, man. First, Saul's transformed. Saul is still persecuting uh, the church. He has obtained letters from the chief priest asking that the synagogue rulers uh, would assist in the extradition of Christians. And at the end of the text, Saul himself is among the persecuted. What happens to him? What explains the, the reorientation of his life? Well, the story provides the only coherent answer there can be. Christ conquers Saul with his sovereign grace. Saul did not decide for Christ. He didn't invite him into his life. He wasn't looking for any kind of new answers uh, spiritually. He was persecuting Christ. Uh, it was instead the living Jesus Christ who decided for him and intervened in him. Now just consider this, just how improbable any other explanation would be. Just consider Saul's frame of mind. Luke has told us already that Saul is a bitter enemy of Christ and his church. He was present at Stephen's martyrdom. Uh, he's the one who everybody checks their coats with, and he is uh, fully in a uh, approval and agreement with the act of stoning Stephen. He's been going house uh, to house, dragging both women and men from their uh, homes. And now, in his hatred and hostility, uh, he's stretching his dragnet out because the church had been scattered from Jerusalem. And so he's going out to gather up those uh, that have uh, fled. His intent is to liquidate uh, Christians and Christianity. Saul is a wild man filled with fury and hate. He's utterly obsessed with this uh, task. And as Paul approaches Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashes all around him. It's brighter than the noonday sun. And it was such an overwhelming experience that he is blinded and knocked off his feet. Falling to the ground, a voice addresses him personally and directly. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was traumatic. It was disorienting. Uh, Paul immediately recognizes there is a voice from heaven speaking to him. And he asks, who are you, Lord? And the voice answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. At once he grasped that Jesus identified with his followers, that Jesus felt the suffering of his people. To persecute Jesus' followers was to persecute Jesus. And this staggering reality would haunt uh, Paul for three uh, days, that Jesus was alive, that he had seen the resurrected Christ in his glory, and that he was in fact who he claimed to be. Now, these words, I am Jesus, uh, carry not only the weight of those familiar sayings from Jesus' lips that spoke of him as doing what only God could do. Well, I'm the great shepherd, uh, the door, the true vine, the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the life, and the truth. This I am carries the full weight of God's personal name. Paul understood uh, Yahweh, Jesus, and he grasped this immediately, and so he obeys. And Saul's traveling companions, they heard a sound, but they uh, did not hear these words. They did not see what Paul saw. Saul is, saw the resurrected uh, Jesus alone. Saul is blind. This once fierce and feared man has to be led like a little child into the city. He is Christ's captive. And there's a touch of irony here in the way Luke tells this story. It, there's a play on words. In the original language that Acts is written in, the word for road and the word for way are the same uh, words. And so the Ethiopian eunuch who is seeking truth finds his way on the road uh, as he leaves Jerusalem to head home. And Saul, while pursuing those who belong to the way, that's uh, verse 2 of chapter 9, meets Jesus on the road, on the way, as he travels from Jerusalem uh, to Damascus. There's just a touch of irony uh, in that, that this hostile man, unlike the Ethiopian, uh, finds himself a member of the way on his way to Damascus. Now, for three days, Saul is blind until both he and Ananias receive visions. It's just another indicator that it is God who's at work in what transpires. Saul's physical blindness is a picture of his spiritual blindness. As Isaiah uh, says in the, toward the end of his prophecy, uh, Israel as a whole was spiritually blind. And Paul later writing in uh, the letter to the Corinthians will say this, and undoubtedly his own experience uh, lies behind uh, this language. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians 4.3. For three days, Saul fasts and he prays and he rethinks everything he thought he knew about God, about Jesus and his own zeal. 
On the Damascus Road, he beholds the risen Christ. It's not a dream. It's more than a vision. He sees Christ, not a body, but he sees Christ in his glory. And the reality of Jesus' resurrection means that Paul has to change his way of thinking about the cross. As Moses said, the one who's hung on a tree is cursed. And now Saul, as he begins to puzzle it out, realizes that Jesus wasn't cursed. No, God raised him from the dead. God approves of Jesus. That Jesus was cursed on the cross because he carried the sins of his people. And it's only those who refuse to believe in Christ who are utterly rejected by God. He sees that the curse uh, uh, was uh, not of Jesus, but rested on Jesus as the sin bearer. And Saul has a new understanding of grace because God has embraced him freely. He was the enemy of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And this transforming grace uh, captured him. In time, he'd work this out. It would cause him to rethink the relationship between the law and being right uh, with uh, God. Only God's sovereign grace encountered on the Damascus Road can explain Paul's transformation. God stops Paul in his tracks and he will never be the same man again. Now this transformation pictures what happens to everyone who receives new life. Now here's what I mean. Some of what Paul experiences is utterly unique to him. The post-resurrection appearance of Christ, the brilliant light, the audible voice from heaven. These are Paul's unique experiences. In fact, he is the last person to encounter the resurrected Christ. But don't miss the typical elements. We often miss them because it's frequently said that Paul's transformation was just sudden. Was it? Well, the answer is yes and no. It's true that it came in a climactic way, but it didn't come out of thin air. And if you closely read what Paul has written and what Paul says about his own conversion, you'll see several things. One of them is this, that Paul recounts that when Jesus spoke to him, he said not only, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But also, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, this was a common proverb about the way a farmer got his ox uh, to move. Jesus is liking Saul to a strong-headed ox and himself as the farmer. The farmer uses a sharp stick to prod the ox on. And Jesus uh, pricks Saul and Saul kicks back. This means at some point, at some conscious level, he was troubled. Troubled by Stephen's murder in his own cruel zeal. Luke tells us at the, uh, just before Stephen dies that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he gazes up to heaven and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ standing by the right hand of God. And he cries out, Stephen cries out, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
The famous psychologist Carl Jung noted, fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating for secret doubts. In Romans 7, Paul admits that his inner motivations were not pure and clean. Despite his zeal for God's law, he was a lawbreaker. Paul's change is preceded by a process. And so too is everyone who comes to Christ. For some people, it might seem like it's a very compressed process, maybe only involving a few days or weeks, but usually it's many months or years. My own conversion was like turning on a light on a dark night in a closet. It was just completely, it was one moment and then another moment, and I was alive. But I can look back and identify things that God was doing in his pursuit of me for 10 years. And looking back uh, through the eyes of what God has done, I can see there was this long process. And I had this sense uh, uh, the last year before uh, Christ uh, came and turned on the light that I was being uh, pursued. And many people even have that sense. But if you look back, you'll, you'll see that. And this has implications for us. It has pastoral implications. It has implications as we share our faith. Because it takes many touches for someone to understand who Jesus is and what it means to turn to Christ. We shouldn't pressure people. We shouldn't rush people. That doesn't mean we don't want to encourage them uh, to take that step of faith. But we shouldn't feel like, well, this is it. No, we, most of the time, are just one part of a long process that we know very little, if anything at all, about in somebody's life. And once in a while, we're privileged to be at the very end of the process and be there when someone actually repents and believes for the very first time. Another mark that all coming to Christ, all who come to Christ have is uh, the transformation is a free response. It's not compelled. The inner workings of God's preparatory grace, it could be an appropriate word spoken here or there. Joys and sorrows. It might be a friend who walks beside you who's of faith and, and whose uh, hope and care uh, for you begins to make you think there might be something uh, more. Sometimes it is only through sorrow that people uh, come to see uh, and hear the words of the gospel. Some people have to, well, they just have to come to the end of themselves the way the prodigal son uh, does. God uses all of this to draw us in his grace and kindness. And his drawing has this quality that could be described as irresistible. It becomes so beautiful and attractive that we are moved uh, toward it. It's we who move, but it's something that God is working in us. And another mark, Christ calls Saul by name. Every transformation shares this. It's personal. It's individual. Christ calls your name. He communicates to you personally and individually, not audibly, but recognizably. I want to say something to you students, you boys and girls here, because you may think, 
I just can't relate at all to Saul. It just seems like so different than my experience. But actually, if you just think about it, the process of God at work in your life has happened from your uh, birth. Your parents have been uh, sharing their faith with you, praying over with you, sharing stories uh, from the Bible in time, reading the Bible uh, to you, uh, bringing you, perhaps compelling you uh, to be here on Sunday mornings. And so all of these things are part of the process that if you've responded to Christ, it's been what God has been up to. And uh, while there may not be something sudden in your uh, saying yes to God in Christ, more than likely there are many, many small places where you've said yes and yes and yes. And it may be that uh, when uh, you're a student and perhaps on a retreat or perhaps on a Sunday morning, uh, you say yes in a more uh, full way. You're more conscious of saying yes. But you've been saying yes many, many times. And there's one more thing. Christ calls everyone personally. So to come to Christ is not simply to adopt what your family has taught you about him. It's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It means you personally claim Christ as your own, that you personally, the sense that he's uh, dealing uh, with you. Do you have that sense this morning? Francis Thomas, uh, his early life was, well, we'd say today it was a mess. Uh, he studied for the priesthood in the Anglican Church, but he didn't complete the course. He studied medicine but failed. He joined the military uh, and was released after one day. And finally, he became an opiate addict. Uh, and, but he couldn't get away from God's persistent love. A man came into his life who recognized he had a real talent uh, for poetry. And at one point later in his life, um, uh, Thompson described his experience in the poem, The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind in the midst of tears. I hid from him under running laughter. I upvisited hopes. I sped from those strong feet that followed, followed after. Are you sensing that the hound of heaven is pursuing you today, that Christ himself is calling you? If so, today is a good day to say yes to him instead of running to turn around and embrace him. One of the signs that that has actually happened in anyone's life is that there's a breaking of the independence and the arrogance that says, I will go my own way, that I will resist authority, that I will insist uh, that uh, what I want is what I must do. Everyone who comes to Christ yields their life up in surrender. This story, as Luke pens, it's just full of surprises. 
because Saul progresses beyond uh, blindness and prayer and fasting to insight. And Saul emerges from the chrysalis of his former life, transformed and someone new. And people react uh, to Saul's transformation. Luke uh, gathers for us a number of little vignettes of how people react to this changed man. A disciple in Damascus named Ananias receives a vision. Go find Saul and pray over him. And if I may paraphrase, Ananias says, Lord, are you trying to get me killed? And, but Ananias is told, no, this man is my chosen uh, instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings in Israel. And I will show him just how much he must suffer uh, for my name. Ananias, is initially his reaction is fear, uh, but he goes, he prays over Saul. Saul regains his sight, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and Ananias admits him into the church by baptizing him. Saul stays in Damascus and goes to preaching in the synagogues. Initially, people are amazed, but it's not long before the Hellenistic Jews in Damascus plot his death. Now, that's not without consequence that Luke mentions. It's the Hellenistic Jews. Remember who Saul was. He was a Jew, of course. He was a Hellenistic Jew. His thinking was thoroughly Jewish. He was trained by Gamiel, one of the most famous uh, rabbis in that uh, time. But he was born in Tarshish, a city of learning and culture. Is in the same league as Athens and Alexandria. It boasted of a library of 200,000 volumes. And of course, he spoke Greek fluently and he understood Greco-Roman culture completely as an insider. You see, he's another Stephen. He's arguing forcefully from the scriptures that Jesus is the promised one, uh, that he is the son of God. The same thing that actually Stephen acknowledges when he says, I see the Son of God. And um, his former co-belligerents in the persecution of the church turn on him. They plot to kill him. And Saul, the persecutor, is now Saul, the persecuted. His suffering has begun some of his disciples, some of those who's, uh, who responded uh, to his message, make sure that he gets out of the city, even though it's perhaps not the most ceremonious way uh, to leave. And then he heads to Jerusalem. The church there reacts by shunning him. They react with skepticism. All but a man named Barnabas, who listens to Saul's story and what he did in Damascus and how the Jews had plotted against him to kill him. And he's convinced that he's in fact a Christian. He's a changed man. And so Barnabas makes introductions. And once again, Saul begins to debate the Hellenistic Jews. And again, he becomes a hunted man. And so he's sent off to Tarshish. Is he fleeing suffering? Is he a coward? No, he's not those things. He's not doing that. He's willing to die. This man who was filled with zeal to destroy the church is now filled with zeal to make Christ 
known. Paul tells us elsewhere in recounting uh, this story that he received a vision. So it's not only the church that thought he should uh, leave town, but the Lord himself directed him to do so. And then Luke closes with these wonderful words. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Jesus has overcome his enemy with grace. Now, this should remind us of something that we easily lose sight of. God can transform anyone. Who are the people in your life that you think are beyond God's reach? Is it an estranged family member, a surly neighbor, a difficult co-worker, a radicalized Muslim, a world leader? What we see here is how it is that we should respond uh, to enemies, to those who are enemies of the gospel, uh, God's enemies. The way God is dealing with them at the moment is to change them to bring them a gospel transformation. And so we ought to respond not with anger, uh, hatred, resentment, but with prayer that God might change those people, that God might open their hearts and minds to respond uh, to the gospel. There is a need for Barnabases in every church, someone who will befriend and come alongside those who are spiritually young, and younger adults. Any Christian can be a Barnabas. You don't have to take a special class, be certified, get a degree in being a Barnabas. Any Christian can be a Barnabas. You just need to be a little further on than the person you come alongside of. Often, though, the church misses the opportunity to invest in students' lives early to build relationships with them the way that Barnabas built a relationship with Saul and invest in them. And as a result, very often, they conclude the church doesn't need them. They may even conclude the church doesn't want them. The church never finds a way for them uh, to uh, have a part in the ministry of the church. And this is one among many elements that contributes to the drift of students away from the church when they finally leave home. It's one of the reasons churches don't retain many of their young adults. A friend of mine named Vance Hayes, who I went to school with, was the area director for InterVarsity Uh, for the state of Utah. If you know anything about Utah, you know it's Mormon country. And so I ask, you know, well, do you actually see Mormons come to faith? And he says, really very difficult. Uh, Mormons are very moral people. Uh, They're very uh, uh, determined uh, to live exemplary uh, lives. And so, no, they're fairly resistant to the gospel, but sometimes someone responds. And then he went on to add, sometimes someone who's prominent in the Mormon community responds to the gospel, and immediately the church rushes them out into the limelight and parades them about and asks them to speak uh, publicly. And it's always uh, people who are not ready and to their own ruin. 
You see, immature Christians should not be put into leadership roles. Instead, they need to be mentored. Now, often this doesn't happen because all churches need more leaders than they have. And uh, often it's the current leaders who say, well, where are the young leaders? And they get impatient and they rush uh, younger Christians, immature Christians into leadership that they're simply not yet ready uh, to handle. It results in pride and pride inevitably uh, leads them to stumble. One of the things that this means is that all churches need a plan to develop leaders. They need a process. Uh, I like to call it a leadership pipeline. You need a pipeline to bring the oil from the well down to the refinery, to where it's really ready uh, to be uh, used. And so it's very, very important to do this and to think about this even now as you uh, are been asked as a congregation to fulfill one of your great privileges and responsibilities, that of nominating men uh, to office. It is very, very good to encourage uh, people, uh, people especially whom you see potential uh, uh, to prepare to be uh, leaders in a class uh, a course of instruction will be offered uh, to that end, um, but not to hurry people who are not uh, ready just because you perceive a need. You don't just want to push somebody because you perceive there's a need. And that's why uh, it's important in this season as uh, you're in these moments for you to pray, to earnestly pray that you would discern who should be nominated, that God would raise up new leaders, and that those men themselves uh, would recognize that Christ himself is summoning them to this office. And we also need to earnestly uh, pray that we'd move beyond our unbelief about what God can do in the lives of other people, that he can change them. Sometimes this It's really true when you've prayed for a family member uh, for a long time. You just give up hope. You just think it's not possible. But it is possible. And what has taken root so often in our hearts is unbelief about Christ's ability to actually transform people. Have you identified several people that you are asking God to work in? People whose lives... Uh, you, you recognize as not being connected to his, or perhaps people you're not sure where they stand. If you want to see people respond to the gospel, dear friends, you've got to have people who you're praying for so that you're alert, more alert than you would otherwise be to those opportunities. Why should you do that? Because, like Saul, all of us who know Christ were at one time his enemies. And Christ died for us while we were still enemies. Seeing that, holding on to that, Reflecting on that until it melts the hardness of our hearts is what is needed 
if we're going to move past our apathy toward those who don't know him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, be pleased to melt our hearts today. Fill us uh, with uh, grace and with hope and with joy. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.